2: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In Connecticut, you might be hearing hooting from great horned owls this time of year. Coming up, we learn about the enigma of the owl. It's a new book by Mike Unwin. We'll talk with him and photographer David Tipling, who captured some amazing images of owls from all over the world. Now, the changing of the seasons brings changes in animal behavior. You've probably seen squirrels where you live bearing acorns feverishly. Later in the show, we'll hear from a biologist at Central Connecticut State University about her research into whether squirrels are engaging in deceptive behavior as they hide all of those acorns. That's later. But first, fall marks migration for many species of birds. Have you noticed which birds have left your backyard in recent weeks? And the new ones who've arrived? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Leave where we live. I want to welcome to the studio Dr. Margaret Rubega, Connecticut State Ornithologist and Associate Professor of the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UConn. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Now, there's something pretty cool that happens along the shore in the fall. I wanted to play a little tape for our listeners.
1: Oh, there they go.
0: the Wow. Holy cow.
2: Now, you're hearing people reacting to tree swallows. Tell us about this, Dr. Rubega.
0: Tree swallows um, migrate through Connecticut, and they tend to concentrate in very specific places uh, in the exact same way that when you're traveling, you need to stop at a Motel 6 or someplace to sleep. Tree swallows go to very particular places on the Connecticut River, To all go to bed at the same time in places that are somewhat sheltered for them. And so because a lot of them are on the move at the same time, they all arrive in those places at the same time. And so them all going down into a particular spot turns into this incredible visual phenomenon where you see hundreds of thousands of birds all flying around and then descending to these resting spots all at once.
2: So it looks like a a cloud of of dark birds all Uh, together.
0: um, Cloud approaches it but doesn't really cover it because they're all moving and they're all moving in this pretty synchronized way. It's as if the clouds overhead we're in motion and doing something very directed in front of you, and, and coupled with the fact that the birds are all doing this at once in this visually very impressive way. They're all swirling around. It's it's kind of like sentient smoke is more what it looks like. You can also hear them. There are so many of them, the sound of their wings in motion as they swirl around before they all settle down um, in this one place where they're going to go to bed makes this low but very impressive sound it's sort of like the wind
2: and we could hear people reacting to this vision of these hundreds of thousands of swallows all moving together why at the mouth of the Connecticut River
0: well there's a there's a little spot called Goose Island where there's um it's a a very low island it's it's not what you and I would think of as an island as useful to build a house or, or put something, it's a wetland. And it has a, a very dense reed bed, a place where there are a lot of these tall plants that can make a living with their feet in salt water. Um, and that's the kind of place that the birds like to go to bed in. Just like when you check into your Motel 6, you'd like the door to lock. The birds want to spend the night someplace secure, where other kinds of animals can't get at them, where dogs can't get at them, where cats can't get at them, where the foxes or the coyotes that happen to be local can't get at them. And a space that is surrounded by water, but has something they can cling to, something they can perch on, is exactly what they're looking for. So this particular spot has all of those elements, there's water around it, the the ground underneath is quite watery and when the tide is high is actually underwater. And the birds have lots and lots and lots of these tall, upright reeds that they can land on and cling to uh, to spend the night.
2: What do scientists know about why uh, these uh, tree swallows and other uh, birds and animals move in this way? I mean, you would think that this would be quite the buffet for a hawk that happened to be by, but it actually protects them when they're in this huge mass.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it is a buffet right i mean hawk, hawks learn where these spots are they hang out on the edges of these spots because it is like a giant buffet but you know how when you walk up to a buffet there's all this food laid out it, it's a challenge to you to pick one thing to pick up you go up and down going ooh ah ooh uh, um maybe that stuff and and more than a buffet probably the real um comparison is to you know on game shows when they have those Booths that they put people on that are full of money and then they turn on a fan and the, and you have a timed period in which you can grab money and if you can catch it, you can take it home. It's just like that. You, the predator can see the, the birds it's trying to catch and there are a lot of them. But because there are so many of them and they're all in motion, it's tough to focus on one, just like that $1 bill. It's hard to focus on exactly one and track it long enough to get a hold of it. So that combined with the fact that if you're in a crowd of many, many, many thousands of other birds, yes, if the hawk is going to eat somebody today, somebody is definitely going to get eaten. If there's only one of you and the hawk is going to eat somebody, you're the one who's going to get eaten. If there's a thousand birds with you, your individual chances of getting eaten are 1% in 1,000, so your personal individual chances are smaller, so every bird in the group gets that same improvement in their odds, even if somebody is still going to get eaten.
2: This is Where We Live. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Margaret Rubega, Connecticut State Ornithologist and Associate Professor of the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UConn. We're talking about this time of year when uh, in Connecticut you can see this uh, phenomenon, this uh, incredible Connecticut tree swallow roost along the Connecticut River. We're going to tweet out some videos at Where We Live so you can uh, see what we're talking about. And if we could talk a little bit more, um, I'd mentioned uh, what scientists know about the movement of these birds when they're in mass. the dynamics and and how they know how to move where you're not seeing them all bumping into each other, Dr. Rubega?
0: Right. Well, that's a subject that's interested people for a really long time because it's an an amazing thing to watch. They're already close to each other. They're moving with what seems like incredible precision in terms of their relationship to each other. Uh, People looked for sort of extra senses that birds might have that might be helping them to do this, whether they had you know, different abilities to to sense pressure on their wings. It turns out that when you sit down and and you sort of do the math of what it would take for them to act the way they're taking uh, when they're in the air and responding to one another, all it is required is that every individual bird keep an eye on the birds around it and when they move to respond within a certain time period. And then the bird next to them will move in the same way. And then the bird next to that bird will move in the same way. And then the whole flock turns. And And this seems kind of implausible to us because, frankly, we're slow in lumbering, comparatively speaking. Our reaction times are really low compared to a bird's reaction time. And, and it, that makes sense. They make a living by flying around. And if you're going to move in three dimensions – at the speeds at which birds do that, they have to have pretty fast reaction times just to function.
2: Now, have you seen uh, these tree swallows roosting in Connecticut along the Connecticut River? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Dr. Rubega, we're focusing on tree swallows, but other birds also do this. I was thinking back to when I lived in Florida in my neighborhood. There was an old church with a very tall chimney, and people would gather to see the chimney swifts at night all traveling together in mass before they all went down into this chimney. And it was very interesting to see that kind of
0: behavior. What are some other species? species of birds that do this well it's interesting that you raise chimney swifts right because um, over the last uh, it's getting on for ten ten years now Um, I've been engaged in some research looking at chimney swifts and there are some really great roosts around the state Um, but there are a lot of other birds that that engage in these sorts of flocking behaviors at this uh, upcoming time of year it's pretty easy to notice that once birds stop breeding, they start to get into these big flocks. Starlings. It's very common to see very large groups of starlings doing this. There's an overpass near the train station here in Hartford. The starlings all go to roost underneath on the the understructure. That's a spot where there are quite a lot of birds. There's a spot just west of Hartford. Um, that sort of spans I-84 where there's a group of trees that crows go to roost in every single night and you'll see the same thing. They're gathering, they're flying around in the sky, they're all landing in these trees in a very similar time of day. Grackles um, in the winter time in fields that have been cut down and there's still some stubble left in will move around in relation to each other in exactly the same way. Big, big clouds of birds... Moving in relationship to each other in these moving sentient smoke like kinds of groups. It's really pretty, a, a fairly common phenomenon for, for birds.
2: Now, if we've piqued uh, listeners' interest in catching the tree swallow roost again along the Connecticut River, when, it, when exactly could they see this? And with the changing, you know, we, we talk often about climate change and how are the temperatures, it seems to be warmer later, and, and how birds even know when, they, when it's time to, to migrate. Are we seeing this
0: movement of the tree swallows changing of when they're heading south? Well, so there's there's a two-part answer to that question. The first thing is birds birds migrate um, in relation to the season, and what I mean by that is that the season is something that's actually related to to day length, right? Birds are very responsive to day length. The first thing that stimulates them to start getting restless about moving from the place that they're in to some place farther south than that, is the change in day length. As the day gets shorter and shorter and shorter, They start producing these hormones that make them restless and make them want to move, kind of like college students just before spring break. They know it's time to go. Um, Having said that, there's some variation in when they actually go that depends on the fact that they have to eat in order to do what we're talking about. And so something like a tree swallow, which is eating insects, which are very responsive To temperature, insects are available and moving around where you can see them to catch them. When it's warm, as soon as it gets cold, they get less available, right? So a tree swallow is going to move partly because the day lengths have gotten shorter and partly because as the available supply of insects to eat drops off, they'll follow, in effect, the line where the the bugs are still about as abundant as they were, They that line keeps moving south, right? So the bird follows the line. As long as the bugs are still abundant, there's a little less pressure on them to move. So you asked about climate change and what climate change is doing is keeping it warmer and keeping it warmer later than it would otherwise be at this time of year, which means that the birds can linger... For a while, the days are still getting shorter, and so they're they whether a given species of bird is actually responding directly to it being warmer depends on a whole lot of factors. Some birds are adjusting to the change, and some birds aren't. Swallows are kind of adjusting to the change. They've they've changed their their the time when they breed a little bit, and they're changing the time when they're moving a little bit. So the answer to, to your basic question is when can we see this happen is that the period during which the birds are moving has shifted back a little bit in the fall and is sort of more prolonged. So they start moving in September. Historically, the numbers have peaked somewhere between mid-September and late September. Now the peak is probably a little farther back than that, but we're, we're at October 12th today and there are still tree swallows in the state, but the giant peak of swallow migration is over. They've mostly moved.
2: So the bad news is we've missed the big roost that we that you have seen <laughs> along the Connecticut River, but we should put it on our calendar for next year.
0: You should absolutely <laughs> put it on your calendar for next year um, and start looking for available slots on uh, river swallow cruises. There are such things in Connecticut. You can actually of course. <laughs> book a spot on a on a boat because the river is the best place to be to see this thing.
2: <laughs> well, I... Thank you, Dr. Margaret Rubega, Connecticut State Ornithologist and Associate Professor of the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UConn. Before we go, we were, again, we're talking about animal behavior, uh, a lot of the birds that we see uh, leaving the area, but what birds do we be looking for in the winter?
0: Oh, well, that depends entirely on where you are. Uh, uh, you, owls are a really good example of birds. We'll talking that, about them, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, owls stay in Connecticut uh, year-round. Chickadees stay in Connecticut year-round. Uh, at this time of year, you'll start to see a small ground bird called uh, dark-eyed junco start to come in. They're they're sort of sparrow-sized and shaped, but they're um, dark all over instead of uh, streaky the way most of what people think sparrows look like. Um, woodpeckers will get a little more obvious for folks at their feeders. If they, especially if you put up a suet block, you'll get woodpeckers right up near your house, up up close and personal, which is very exciting. And of course, the eagles. And of course, the eagles along, the Connecticut, the, eagles along the Connecticut River. The eagles, uh, because they're no longer breeding, uh, will also tend to collect in a place where there's food, and the Connecticut River um, it is that place.
2: Well, I really appreciate you coming in today to talk about this phenomenon. Again, the Connecticut Tree Swallow Roost. uh, Put it on your calendars for late September next year. And uh, maybe we'll have you back to talk more about uh, birds throughout our state. Thank you so much, Dr. Rubega. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, the change in seasons prompts squirrels to launch into overdrive, darting everywhere to find acorns and other tree nuts to prepare for winter. Now, researchers at kinetic, Central Connecticut State University have been studying squirrel behavior for some time. A biologists from CCSU will join us after the break. This is Where We Live. This is where we live, I'm Lucy nalbeth Today we're focusing on animal behavior with the change in seasons. Now squirrels are feverishly busy this time of year, but given all the competition for acorns and other tree nuts, like chestnuts that scatter the ground in autumn, do squirrels engage in deceptive behavior to trick would-be thieves? That's one of the questions researchers at Central Connecticut State University had. Joining us now is Dr. Sylvia Halkin, professor of biology at CCSU. Dr. Halkin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. You know, when we look at squirrels, maybe a lot of us uh, think that they're not very intelligent. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about the the rodent that you've learned about.
1: Well, first of all, I have to thank a lot of people, like 64 CCSU students who have helped with this research and had most of the good ideas. And two colleagues, Mike Steele and Peter Smallwood, who are at Wilkes University and University of Richmond, respectively, and and got me going on squirrels once I saw that they were doing such cool things and wanted to study them. I needed to catch up quick because I was an ornithologist before that and still am. <laughs> so this is, this is my really fun side job. Um, so squirrels are scatter hoarders, which means that when they find nuts, they take them individually and scatter them around in different sites. And that alone protects them from theft somewhat because the thief would have to look in a lot of different places. But one of my students noticed one day that sometimes squirrels would bury nuts and then walk away and cover up nothing. And we got pretty interested in that and started asking around. And it turned out that Mike Steele had been studying this too. Um, he'd seen squirrels go through all the motions of burying a nut. They'd dig a hole. They'd kind of ram it in with their head. They'd cover up the hole. They'd rake leaves over the hole. They'd walk away and they still had the nut in their mouth. And other squirrels would come up sometimes and try to dig there and not find anything so they were being misdirected and it worked Um, and we don't know what's going on in the squirrel's mind when it does this we don't know if it's just an automatic thing that happens if there are other squirrels around it sort of has an instinct to do this or if it's really thinking out the consequences of its behavior but in any case it certainly functions as deception and yeah when we when we noticed that we we tried to study it some more and we found out all these other things that squirrels are doing to keep nuts they find from being eaten such as such as um some of the obvious ones are just moving away from other squirrels when they bury nuts and we've actually mapped out where different individual squirrels put nuts and it turns out that Many of them have individual areas they regularly use that don't overlap with those of other squirrels. And then there's a few squirrels that just bury their nuts wherever. So they have their own turfs. So they have their own turfs. yeah. They don't have to defend them, which would be a huge amount of energy because the nuts are kind of scattered within them. But they do kind of walk away from everybody else unless there's a whole lot of squirrels in one place and a whole lot of nuts. And then they just stick them in the ground really quickly, fairly close together, but they come back later and move them to other. Other places, And when squirrels bury nuts, some researchers in India, in, in, sorry, not India, England, notice that they, they walk away and then turn around and have their back end toward whoever's watching them, either other squirrels or people. And that's another way of kind of making it harder to target exactly where that nut might be. Um, Mike's done a bunch of work recently and found out that squirrels bury particularly valuable, calorie-rich nuts out in the open, which is more risk to them because predators can see them more easily and there isn't a quick tree to run up. But the payoff from that is that it's a really risky place for thieves to be out looking for nuts. and. He's actually buried nuts in the same way in open areas and under tree canopies, and the tree canopy ones disappear way quicker than the ones in open areas. So that seems to work. Now, Dr. Hawken, uh, you know, deception is something researchers
2: have observed in, in other animals, mm-hmm. primates specifically. Mm-hmm. Is this a common thing for
1: other animals to do? Primates and crows, ravens, and jays do things like this, but rodents, nobody knew about this till we started studying it. So, not. And one of the reasons that deceptions rare in animals in general is if you used it a whole lot, other individuals could kind of see through it. Mm -hmm. And we think that that's one of the reasons that squirrels have all these other tactics, too. Like, um, we decided we wanted to see what happens if theft increases. And we couldn't get the squirrels to do that. But my really smart student, T.J. McKenna, who's now a staff scientist at the Connecticut Science Center, said, well, you know, squirrels are dealing with other species of thieves. Maybe they'll deal with us like we're just another species of nut thief. And what if we dig up the nuts? And we found out when we started digging up a squirrel's nuts, it was way more likely to eat the next nuts we gave it. That's a really good way to protect Mm. them. But of course, your stomach capacity is limited. So they also, if we're following them around, specifically if a thief is following them around, they take longer to bury nuts. They dig more holes they don't use. They duck out of sight of the thief. And particularly exciting to us because this really seems like something they have to be doing cognitively and consciously. They put the nuts in places that we couldn't get to them, even though obviously other squirrels could. So they're saying, oh, it's that kind of thief. Okay, they can't get under really low things. They're not going to climb a tree. They're not going to want to dig around in the mud. Um, They're not going to go behind the fence. They won't fit. And so that's, you know yet another thing that they're doing. It kind of blows us away that they have all these different tactics they're using. Although we were talking about deception,
2: what are some of the future experiments that you and your students will be conducting in relation to squirrel behavior?
1: Well, right now we're trying to look at the burying in the open thing Mm -hmm. and that's been established in populations in Connecticut that, I'm sorry, in Pennsylvania that Mike Steele's been studying. But we're wanting to make sure that our squirrels do that too, or if they don't, find out why not. And so we're running experiments where, first of all, we take a baseline to see what percentage of hazelnuts that we put out for them, which are really calorie-rich, delicious nuts, you probably know. Um, We like them too. What percentage of those get buried in the open versus under tree canopy? And then we have a student who's being a thief um, and is sort of marking themselves by wearing a bright yellow uh, safety jacket with reflective tape on it. And that person will dig up any nuts that are under the canopy to see if we can modify it and reinforce the behavior of bearing in the open by experience and that may tell us a little bit more about how the behavior of bearing in the open develops if it works but we don't know if it'll work yet all experiments you're not sure what the outcome will be or you wouldn't bother doing them and you know maybe that's just something again that's instinctive that isn't really modifiable but um it's worth trying so, yeah, when we've, when we've dug up nuts, we have found a little more of the going and covering up nothing mm-hmm. behavior or the digging a hole and not putting the nut in. But, but it's in combination with all this other behavior. We were hoping it would just kind of spike, and it, it doesn't mm-hmm. as far as we've been able to tell. Mike finds that it happens more often in his really dense squirrel population if you, there are more squirrels around or if the closest squirrel's nearer to the burying squirrel.
2: We just have uh, another minute and a half left. Uh, Dr. Sylvia Halkin, again, professor of biology at Central Connecticut State University. Um, how has uh, how have researchers in the animal world responded to your specific research on squirrels and, and maybe changing some of the stereotypes of these particular backyard rodents?
1: Well, some of the research, it, a lot of different angles on this research have kind of been taking place at the same time. Um, The whole thing about turning your back to squirrels was kind of, to observers, was pretty exciting to me. Once some other research reported it, I noticed our squirrels were doing it too. There are people studying how squirrels assess the value of their nuts. Um, It turns out that there's a sort of head flick they do that's so fast that you can hardly see it unless you take a movie and slow it down that... um, The researchers who've studied it think let them tell how heavy the nut is, which is some information about how valuable it is. Mike's really interested not only in. Um, what the squirrels are doing, but its effect on the trees whose seeds they're dispersing. So as you can imagine, putting a seed out in the open is better for the tree too, because there's less competition for the tree.
2: This is really fascinating research. Thank you, Dr. Sylvia Halkin, professor of biology at Central Connecticut State University, for some new insights on the squirrels around us. We appreciate it. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Just ahead, we learn more about a bird of prey that is rather elusive owls now before we hear about the new book the enigma of the owl i wanted to remind you it's wmpr's fall fundraising campaign do you listen to where we live for the conversations we have about our state our nation our world please support this show here a couple of my colleagues to tell you how This is where we live. I'm Lucy nall Today we've been focusing on animal behavior. Now have you noticed the hooting of an owl near your home at night? In New England there are several kinds of owls, including the great horned owl, the eastern screech owl, and the barn owl. But there are many more owls across the globe. In the new book, The Enigma of the Owl, 53 species are featured, along with beautiful photographs and information on their habitats and behaviors. Joining us now from England is Mike Unwin, travel and nature writer and author of The Enigma of the Owl joining us today from the studios of the BBC. Mike, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: Also, the photographer, uh, many of the photos in here, taken by David Tiplane, who specializes in birds, and chief photographer and photo editor of the Enigma of the Owl. David is also joining us by phone. David, welcome to where we live.
4: Hello, good to speak to you.
2: I'll start with Mike. Your book again is titled The Enigma of the Owl. Uh, When people think about owls, uh, you know, they're very mysterious. We're captivated by them, but most of us have never seen them in person.
3: That's right. And I think that's where the title came from, really. I think that there's something about owls that lifts them out of the bird world, at least in our perception of them. I mean, we know that a naturalist will tell you that their, their birds are prey and uh, they're adapted for the job they do. But you only have to look at the, the range of superstitions in, in cultures all over the world and the way in which owls are represented in fiction and the, the way that they're still a kind of shorthand for the spooky and the, and the nocturnal and the mysterious to, to realize that they, they have a, a different kind of weight. They have a different um, image from other birds.
2: Walk us through some of uh, the perceptions of owls uh, through mythology and from in different cultures around the world,
3: Mike. Well, it's interesting because it really does depend on where you go. So, I mean, I grew up in, in this country where I think the idea of owls is quite similar to in, in, in your part of the world where they're associated with, with wisdom and, um, and reverence. and they, In fact, the, in, in ancient Greece, the goddess Athene was represented by the little owl, which is a bit like your burrowing owl. But then if you go to other parts of the world, if you go to the tropics, Africa, the Caribbean, owls are seen as sinister. They, uh, they are harbingers of doom. They're associated with witchcraft. There are all kinds of stories that if one flies over your house, it, it foretells a death in the family and there are incantations to ward them away and, and things like that. And of course, not one idea of the owl is more true than another. We we bestow these human qualities on them. And I think it's there are reasons for that. I think... One is that they, they have a face <laughs> among all birds. They seem to have a human expression. They have forward-facing eyes, and that's an adaptation for hunting, but they, they seem to focus on you. And we look at those eyes and we, we bestow human qualities on them, like, like wisdom or or anger or, or curiosity. And so we respond to them in a different way. And I, and I think also they operate by darkness. And anything that does that, anything that's kind of behind the scenes of our lives, if you, were, if you like. You know, we've always been as, we've afraid of the dark and we don't know what they do, um, we don't know. They fly silently, they catch things by, with almost miraculous powers to us. And there's, there's something about that, that that takes them out of the, the, the natural history realm into the, into the kind of the fictitious and the, and the mysterious.
2: Now, uh, uh, David, we heard Mike talk about the unique features and behaviors of the owls. As a wildlife photographer, how do you capture uh, these magnificent uh, photographs of these elusive birds of prey?
4: Well, they are very challenging. I think because two-thirds of the species around the world are very nocturnal, uh, you, you, are, you are up against it. Um, so various ways, really, finding where they roost. Um, finding nest sites they 're the two main they 're the two main ways really um, and there are there are a few species that will hunt during the day so here where I live in in North Norfolk on the eastern side of England, uh, we have barn owls uh, a very good population, and in late winter when they 're getting ready to breed, they start to hunt a lot during daylight uh, because they they're they 're getting ready um, For uh, a period where they're going to be finding it tough to to, to find food because prey availability in late winter is is very low Um, and so they can't always get all they need during the night so they're out during the day and so you can photograph them hunting meadows and fields um, and you can find particular meadows that are vol-rich and then they tend to be creatures of habit and and wait for the owls to, to turn up
2: Uh, I learned a long time ago to to look for pellets around on the forest uh, floor, but that still doesn't help me find the owls. Have you ever tried that? (laughs) (laughs) No, I haven't. (laughs) Well, then scratch that. Uh, uh, Mike, we were talking uh, about uh, how hard it is to see uh, these owls out in the wilderness. Uh, Take us through some of these species of owls that we may not have heard about here uh, in the U.S.
3: Well, I I can't say I'm that familiar with Connecticut, but um, there's a chapter in the book that talks about the owls of the the whole of uh, North America. I know that, interestingly, you have many species that are similar to the ones we have in Northern Europe, because, of course, these parts of the world were were once joined, so you have similar habitats. So, um, and you have equivalent species. Your your big owl, the the big, most fearsome looking one is the great horned owl, that I believe is quite common in in your part of the world. very impressive creature then you'll have much smaller um the the eastern screech owl a uh, very nocturnal species that feeds on much smaller prey um, then you have the barred owl uh, which is probably known from its call i think it, it, it's it's given a phrase possibly um who cooks for you, I believe it's is supposed to be saying. That's very similar to our, our tawny owl. It belongs to the, the wood owl genus, and these are very nocturnal and quite powerful, aggressive owls. Um, barn owls as well. David mentioned barn owls in Norfolk. You have barn owls in the, in the US. Um, beautiful, largely white birds, white underneath, and the source of many ghost stories, uh, incidentally, because I think they're white plumage and they have a, their their slightly eerie call. It's a sort of hissing scream, and it comes seems to come from, typically in this country, from old church towers and graveyards and so on, which just tends to reinforce the myth. Mm. Um, and then in winter, uh, a lo- quite a lot of owls are. Sedentary, in other words, they don't travel very far. But there are other species that move in response to their prey, um, and their populations fluctuate. So David talked about a vole-rich meadow. Voles and small rodents really control owl populations and determine where they spread. And I think in in the northeastern U.S., you'll have in good vole years. Um, you will have owls, or conversely poor vol years, when the owls in the far north have eaten all the food and have to head south to find more, you'll have species like snowy owls a beautiful, great, white owl, known as Hedwig to Harry Potter fans, mm-hmm. that comes all the way down from the Arctic, um, I believe you get them regularly on Long Island and yes. off your, your coastline, and, and I think I've, I've, they've been recorded as far south as South Carolina, in mm-hmm. fact um, so you get these movements uh, that are very unpredictable, um,
2: And I think we have a clip of a great horned owl. Let's hear that one. And Mike, I wanted to play that because I've actually heard that uh, around my house in in Suffield, which is the northern part of Connecticut near the Massachusetts uh, border around this time of year. Why would we be hearing this kind of owl at this time of year?
3: Well, um, if your owls are anything like ours, As David said, this time of year, uh, as it approaches winter, Mm. uh, they're preparing for breeding in the spring. Um, Also, they are, although few owls are actually migratory, uh, they disperse, which is really this year's uh, young, this year's fledglings, leaving the area in which they hatched and were raised and and spreading out. So they'll be moving away from the, the parental territory, if you like, to set up territories nearby and, um, and they will be calling to establish those territories and calling this side of winter in order to see if there's any activity around to, to find a mate to possibly pair up ready for spring.
2: This is where we live. I'm speaking with Mike Unwin uh, from uh, the BBC Studios in Brighton, travel and nature writer, author of this new book book, The Enigma of the Owl. Also on the phone with us, David Tipling, a, a wildlife photographer who specializes in birds. He was the chief photographer photo editor of this uh, beautiful book, again, that features 53 uh, different species of owl, uh, owls around the globe. I want to go back to uh, the photographer David Tipling. Uh, you know, we, we think of birds as, 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 while they're birds of prey, that they may not be dangerous to us, but they can be fairly deadly. Could you tell us the story of Eric Hosking?
4: yes Uh, eric hosking was a very famous bird photographer in this country and uh back in the 1930s well he had a passion for photographing owls and back in the 1930s there were there started to be developments with flash so photographing owls at night you need a you need a light source and uh before 1936 you know, uh, photographers would use this magnesium powder, which would sort of explode and be a big pop and a bang. And uh, sometimes, if you're using them out in fields and things, you'd start burning vegetation and stuff because it was it was a sort of a, like a mini explosion going off. And so that was no good for photographing birds. Um, but then, in 1936, there was something called a saskolite bulb invented, and this is like a sort of torch bulb that you could screw in and. Once, once it went off, uh, you had to discard it and you'd put another one in. But that was much quieter. That gave you a good beam of light to take your picture. And so Eric's owl photography really took a leap forward uh, during those years. And in, I think it was 1939 he went over to Wales to photograph a tawny owl's nest. A gamekeeper had got in touch with him and told him that they had this really nice tawny owl's nest on the edge of a field uh, in a hole, and the gamekeeper built him a pylon uh, on which Eric put his blind, and he was about 20 foot away from the nest. So when he got there, uh, he went over and inspected everything, and they decided, because the... Blind hadn't been in place for very long, that they would give it a couple of days before he started to photograph. And then on uh, the 12th of May, 1939, it was uh, the coronation day of King George VI, and it just so happened that in this field, the local village were going to have their coronation day celebrations. So it was very close to the nest, and there were children and people going over, curious about this uh, structure on the edge of the field. And I think the owls probably got a bit upset with this human intrusion. In fact, during the day, there's a report of one owl swooping down and hitting a young boy on the back of the head. Um, and so Eric decided that perhaps he shouldn't go in to hide the, the blind that night to photograph the owls um, because they'd been quite disturbed. But he decided to go in and just watch for a while after dark, so he climbed up to the hide, and there was nothing really happening um so he climbed down again and when he was leaving walking across the field he suddenly he suddenly wondered whether he'd left something in the hide i think one of his cameras or a flash or something and so he decided he ought to go back and retrieve what he'd left and as he was climbing up the ladder to the blind uh, he suddenly felt this this intense pain in his left eye and a tawny owl had swooped in the dark, down and attacked him and sunk a talon right into the middle of his his left eye, uh, and he was driven to Morfield's Hospital overnight. And they operated on him as soon as they got to hospital. They couldn't save the eye, and he wondered whether he was going to continue to be be able to continue to be a nature photographer with just uh, one eye. But um, Decided he 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 was very determined decided he would and after a couple of weeks decided he wanted to go back actually and photograph these tawny owls Um, Mm. He described it as being like a perhaps a a pilot who has a crash Mm -hmm. and survives and needs to get back into the the Plane again um, to make sure that he's going to be comfortable getting Mm. into hides and photographing owls in the future so he went back to Wales uh, this time he wore a fencing mask <laughs> and uh, climbed up to the blind, but the owls had fledged; mm. the, the the young had had left the nest. But he went back the following year and and photographed those birds that nested in the same well, in the same place. Well,
2: David, we're almost out of time. I wanted to go back to to Mike Unwin again, travel and nature writer, author of the Enigma of the Owl. Uh, we just have under a minute left. Uh, you again. I mentioned that this book, The Enigma of the Owl, features fifty three species of owl. Um, Tell us how you decided to uh, map out which owl species and and how readers, when they pick up this book, can look through and learn about them based on where they are in the world.
3: Well, there are owls from every continent in the world. And there are also there's a separate continent I've kind of invented, which is the world's oceanic islands, because owls that have adapted to islands form a, a group of their own The tricky thing in the selection was that we wanted to give a fair representation worldwide, but of course the owls of Northern Europe and North America are much better represented by photographs and literature. Um, So we started with the images that David had, um, and then we looked elsewhere to find what we could. We wanted the ones that uh, we wanted a selection of all different kinds of owl, the big, the small, the tropical, the polar, and also the ones about which there are stories to tell, like the one mm-hmm. David's just told. And But we could equally have done 53 other species. Mm. There are 250, and there's endless fascination.
2: This is a lovely book, The Enigma of the Owl. Mike Unwin and David Tipling, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having us. This is Thank Where you. We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks to producer Carmen Baskoff, WMPR intern Sarah Bly. If you appreciate the, the programs here at WMPR, including Where We Live, now's the time to support us. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how.